Support for An Honest Account comes from Moneybox, the award-winning app helping people save and invest for their future. Moneybox allows you to invest with your spare change, from your morning coffee to your bus fare, rounded up to the nearest pound. Moneybox offers a range of savings and investment accounts and makes it super easy to use. All you do is sign up in minutes and get started with just one pound. Join over 200,000 people saving and investing for their future with Moneybox. You can download the app today or head to moneyboxapp.com for more details. Please remember that with all investing, your capital is at risk. And thank you to Moneybox. to An Honest Account, a podcast about how money affects our lives, our work, health, relationships and more. So how much time and money do we spend experimenting and researching when it comes to contraception? Why are the options so confusing and underfunded? And how do you get a femtech business off the ground? I'm Rachel Revis and today I'm speaking to Alice Pelton, founder of The Lowdown, the world's first review platform for contraceptives, to answer those questions. I spoke to Alice while she was travelling in Asia, so just a heads up that the quality is a tad patchy in places. Thank you very much for joining me from Thailand. Thanks, Rachel. It feels like yesterday that we first met and we were interning for a national paper um, where I'm not sure what value we provided, but anyway, um, but we've hopefully come a long way since then. So can you tell me a little bit about um, what inspired this business to do with kind of reviewing contraception and how it came about? Like, were you just sitting at your desk one day and you had like a light bulb moment or how did how did it happen? I was on... Uh, sabbatical with my boyfriend a couple of years ago and uh, we were when we were out for dinner and we were talking about the problems that I'd had on the pill and um, and how frustrated I was about not being able to find information and, and sort of readily available data about, about contraception and it, the idea just sort of came to me and, and like most ideas you, you you have them and you think yeah but somebody's already done that right uh, but because it's in women's health, no one's done it. No one cares. So um, I sort of sat on the idea for a couple of years and then I went to a stylist live event and I saw a woman called Debbie Wasco, who's the founder of the Albright Speak, and she just sold her second business for £53 million. Pounds. Um, and I was just absolutely blown away by her. Um, and I think just seeing her talk kind of gave me the boost I needed to just get on with it and... So I'd started building it, researching it, um, finding people to help me and kind of went from there. What was it about her talk that inspired you? Or was it the 50 million? <laughs> <laughs> she stood up without a script um, and without any, you know, cues or anything and just talked for 45 minutes about how she'd built these um, successful startups, what inspired her how she juggled it, everything in her life. And she was just so, I don't know, often I, I see with, what I hate the way that we hold 
kind of really well um, high performing women up as these sort of exemplars because I think when we get to real equality they're just good you know just as men are good and women are good but she was just um, I thought absolutely mind-blowing and I loved her kind of take no crap attitude and I, I really was inspired by the way she talked about getting on and actually doing it and she at one point she said you know a lot of people have good ideas but whether you actually go home and you know carve out time in your evening to do something with it that's the thing that makes the difference and I think that really spoke to me at that time because I'd had this idea for a long time and not really done anything and yeah I think she just talked about the hard work and just making it happen I guess so that really resonated that makes me feel so terrible because I think of all the evenings I've done absolutely nothing (laughs) Exactly. And we've all, you know, you have these ideas, you write your New Year's resolutions, you look at your goals or, you know, I do because I'm sad and I set myself them. But do you actually, you know, break your habit of going home and cooking dinner and watching an episode on Netflix? Do You know, do you actually? Well, like, no, most of the time you don't because you're tired and you have a job and, you know, that already takes up a lot of your energy. And I think... Yeah, I think of these kind of side hustles, they take that effort to break that habit. And the thing I found was just by, I, I, I set myself, I said, look, I'll just work on it for six hours a week, you know, which doesn't sound like a huge amount of time in a whole week, you know, when you take out the Netflix documentaries and such. And and I realised as I got going and stopped putting pressure on myself and not doing it enough and just did my six hours, I could always find more time to do it. Um, and I also realised um, I shouldn't work on it when I'm not in the mood um, because it takes twice as long and, you know, it's just better not to bother. So kind of setting myself those two rules to get going really helped uh, me not constantly guilt myself for not doing it enough, but also just try because something's better than nothing, isn't it? I think there's a um, a trap with Netflix because you know series goes on they go on for so long. Like we started Pool Dark in the summer and it's like six seasons. You never have a life. But anyway, I'm going to move on from that. Um, <laughs> so tell me more about why you said that nobody cares about women's health, and I'm inclined to agree with that. It's amazing that there the business you created like there was that gap in the market and there wasn't anything else out there like it I just I find that absolutely mind-boggling and Mm -hmm. what else has surprised you since getting those you've got what how many people now just briefly have reviewed Uh, we've got almost 2,000 reviews um and we've kind of got a a steady stream of of traffic now which is really good so what surprised you the most about these reviews coming in is it that they're all so disparate or are you finding interesting patterns like what because there's so many different types of contraception yeah, um, I think I was surprised by just how strongly the kind of impact on mood and mental health is coming out. Um, and I genuinely believe there's like a sort of epidemic of, you know, women out there um, who don't really realise the impact that, you know, hormonal contraceptive could be having on their, their mindset. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I guess one of the criticisms would be, oh, you know, people aren't capable of, you know, talking about their side effects and it's very difficult and people are biased and they can't remember things. And I completely agree, but actually we're seeing really interesting things like, for example, the types of pills that um, are, are, more, are more known or, or more talked about to um, stimulate hair growth are actually the ones where women are talking about, you know, 
growing more hair, um, you know, or becoming more hairy. Um, So things like that I get excited about. Um, And there's also, I guess, something that's interesting in that a large proportion of the reviews are for the pill. You know, there is every type of contraceptive on there, but the sad state is it's very pill-heavy and those pill reviews are for a lot of the same brands as well. So I guess for me, I'm... I'm looking at it thinking it's such a shame because it doesn't seem to be that many options or women aren't really offered the full range of options as well, you know as well as I think they could be. I think everyone is trying to figure out their own what works for them and whatsapping their friends which is funny funnily enough how you started right you were whatsapping people mm-hmm. doing surveys and whenever I whatsapp my friends now we have a group of nine of us from school and it's a lifesaver. Um, because I just asked them stuff that I wouldn't ask anyone else. And every time I ask, the answers are different. Oh, I tried this. I came off this. This didn't really work. How much do women actually spend, not only in time researching what's right for them, but in monetary value? I mean, how much does it actually cost us over our lifetimes or whatever? Well, firstly, you know, we're very lucky to have the NHS where contraception is free. But in many countries, the cost is enormous. Um, it's actually maddening that, you know, only the woman has to pay for this. But in terms of the UK, I think it's quite an interesting question because in terms of time, you could say that we don't spend enough time really researching and understanding contraception. Superdrug did a survey that showed that 30% of women spend less than half an hour researching their contraceptive options, whilst 85% of women spend more than 30 minutes getting ready for a night out. So, you know... Like we say, there's a lack of information and it's not always presented in the right way. It's sometimes just quite difficult to know where to go for good advice. Um, But, you know, having that time to critically assess and look into what you're taking and why and, um, you know, whether you should change it is, is, I think, really important. Um, Mm. And for other, you know, whereas for other women, the the admin of contraception and the time it takes up and therefore the money that they lose, whether in loss of earnings or, you know, or the money that their employer um, has to kind of foot for them is huge. And Moya Crockett wrote a brilliant piece in Stylist magazine about the hassle that she went through to get through, to get hold of um, her contraceptive pill, Lostrin 20 recently. Um, And in her words, you know, it's a form of labour that is astronomically time consuming, extremely disorientating and usually shouldered by women in grim silence. So most women in the UK are on the pill. Most women have to go to a clinic every three months for pill checks, which is a topic in and of itself. Firstly, they've got to get the appointment. And as we know, the NHS is hugely overstretched. So calling up, um, you know, as, as I'm sure you have at eight o'clock to get the same day GP appointment is always a bit of a battle. And then there's mm. the sexual health services. And I don't know if you've sat in a sexual health clinic recently, but it's packed. There's always a huge queue. You sit in a crowded waiting room for hours and it's generally really annoying. Um, and a recent survey by the British Association of Sexual Health and HIV found that six in ten medical professionals working in sexual health services were having to turn away patients each week. So, you know, there's not enough places to get your coil fitted. There's not enough places to get your pill um, quickly when you need it, when you're just about to run out. There's not enough places to get your coil removed if you're not getting on with it or your implant. You know, and and so many women I, I speak to... Uh, 
are spending so much of their time researching, calling, booking appointments, having to, you know, take half days off work to go and get this stuff sorted. Um, and I think it's just this, it's just another piece of sort of unpaid, um, unrecognised labour and effort and faff that we have to put up with. And I think it's it's such a shame. And I think we could probably work to put a monetary value on it somewhere, but I'm sure it's it's probably into the hundreds or, or thousands of pounds. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, on that note, we also have talked recently about using an app to track your cycles. Is that something your company looks at? And what do you think about the recent kind of backlash against using them? I think, I don't think they should be obviously selling such sensitive data. And obviously that's really not good and something that we'll never do. Although I do think that something as simple I mean let's be honest these apps aren't exactly rocket science (laughs) they're like you know they just work out roughly when you're going to come on your period and it's such a simple thing but it's helped so many millions of women you know predict their cycles and get pregnant and all this um I just think there's so much more we can be doing in this space um it's almost like they're just the beginning aren't they really I think we should aspire for, for much more than a woman entering something that tells her that her cycle's, you know, 28 days long and that's about it. There's another thing that kind of worries me sometimes is that since, although obviously the having the pill is an amazing thing, transformative thing for women, like, is there research out there that shows us what the long-term health impacts are? Like, I'm as you said on your website, you're not trying to scaremonger, neither am I. I'm just conscious yeah. that because we have so little information generally when it comes to women's health I feel like we don't know about enough about that like the vaginal mesh scandal Mm. thing um when you know friends have the coil fitted sometimes it can be extremely painful it just it just seems like such a mess what's what's your obviously you're gathering this data now for a good purpose but are you concerned about the lack of what we've had so far oh absolutely I think you know I, I created the lowdown um kind of for a specific re- for a few specific reasons, but I think I've realised through you know speaking to women, reading the reviews, um, there's a huge lack of understanding and, and information out there about contraception and, and frustration. I think a lot of the information we're given is incredibly patronising. You know, people are smart and they really like to really understand it in a bit more detail. And things are coming out of the woodwork now that, you know, we don't need to take breaks between our pill packets and things. And and actually that could help us reduce the side effects and make the pill more effective. Um, Yeah, I I think in general, I just feel it's we've kind of been fobbed off a bit um, and we do need to talk about this more. And and creating the lowdown was my shot at opening the conversation, collecting experiences and seeing what women are feeling and thinking and, and to your point about the WhatsApp groups, the biggest thing that came out for me before we launched in our research was, you know, I remember one woman said, you know, the best advice I get is from my girlfriends. And I think that really sums up for me. Um, I'm not trying to do away with doctor's advice or, you know, other, other avenues that you can go down. But sometimes it's just really helpful to ask somebody. And, and, and what I'm trying to do with the lowdown is ask lots of people, you know, how they got on with something. Mm. And what do you think about the male pill? Wouldn't it be nice if there was a bit more of a burden on men? Oh, absolutely. I think I get a bit frustrated with the conversations about the male pill because when people say, oh, you know, can we trust men? And it's like, 
Oh, <laughs> don't patronise everyone here. But I think that the male contraceptive is really interesting in that it raises quite big ethical issues around taking something, um, and I don't want to f- fall into a, a big feminist argument here, but taking something to predominantly prevent something in somebody else. Because um, if you um, believe that a woman is still in the majority, you know, responsible for the at least pregnancy of, of a child, well, she is, you know, birthing the child and then, and, and then you know, in our society looking after it afterwards. Um, it's really interesting if you think about what, you know, what the male contraceptive raises in that men will be taking it to prevent something in somebody else. Um, and I think that I think that's why it's such a contentious issue, and then coupled with the fact that there's obviously a huge um, rampant sexism in the sense that um, the male contraceptive uh, trials were halted because six percent of the participants reported side effects, including acne, mood changes, um, and and changes to libido. I mean, if you look at our results, something like seventy eight percent of women report. Um, side effects from their contraceptive so that that six percent actually halted the uh, trial the um, clinical Mm. trial so you know there's a huge kind of sexism there with the way that we view male and female pain and discomfort and what women have been presumed they should be they should put up with for a long time yeah, because women are just getting on with it. <laughs> we wouldn't even think twice to report, oh, I'm getting, you know, maybe an extra spot or something. Um, so tell me a bit more about your your own story. You mentioned that at the beginning, but it sounded quite difficult. So can you just um, clarify mm-hmm. a little bit how you took various pills and that kind of thing? Yeah, I think, so like most teenagers, I went on microgynon when I first started having sex when I was 16. Um, and... Um, I think at that time, there's, there's many reasons why younger women might not realise that contraception, you know, could be having a negative impact on their life. Um, their hormones are a bit up and down then anyway, but also you're just so relieved not to get pregnant that you don't really critically assess, you know, what your contraception is and how it works and w- what it might do. So um, I just felt, I felt like it really impacted my mood and I had quite a lot of lows and felt really down for long periods of time on the pill. Um, and I, I tried lots of different types of pills throughout my 20s and I just couldn't really find one that didn't really negatively impact my mood. Um, I'd quite cry over, you know, nothing and just feel pretty terrible. And eventually I plucked up the courage to get a, um, a coil fitted, which um, was painful, but in my mind worth it to reduce those negative side effects. And yeah, I just found through that process, I found it very frustrating. I found that, I, you know, the doctor's appointments were really short. I didn't have a lot of time to get my questions answered. Um, I felt like I was just sort of trying various brands of pill with any, without any understanding about, you know, the differences between them or what levels of what hormones were in them. And I couldn't really find data on the side effects, you know, what are the chances that I'd get this or the chances that I'd get that, apart from something that's written in a packet which says, you know, one in a hundred women or one in ten women, which I just found, you know, really unhelpful. So I think all of those reasons um, kind of culminated in me thinking that it would be helpful to crowdsource opinions and experiences from people to help answer some of those questions. Mm-hmm. 
And I don't know if this applies to you when it comes to like funding or raising funding, but I recently saw this statistic about for every pound given to um for every pound given by venture capital firms in the UK, like less than one pence goes to all female teams. So even if you felt like you had total control over your kind of company and your pitch and you knew exactly what you were doing, if you were confronted with like a male panel, they would want to invest in something that they could relate to or that they mm-hmm. experienced directly. So I wonder, regardless of, of raising funding, if you are or you aren't, do you feel concerned by that in, when it comes to creating the successful business and kind of going forwards and creating scale? Uh, I would have about five or 10 years ago, but I think there was about 3 million invested into femtech startups about 10 years ago. And this year it's already over 500 million. So finally, um, investors are realising, you know, these huge problems that, you know, the markets are huge, the problems are huge, the opportunities are huge. There's a lot of money um, and, and, and things to be made here. So I do feel like, and also, I think because of that statistic, which, you know, I've heard as well, I think there's a lot of um, venture capitalists who are interested in investing in female founded startups. So I think it's the tide is turning and, and especially in terms of femtech, it's, it's really it's like the hot topic at the moment. Well, that's positive news. <laughs> that's a good, a good spin on it. How did you make that important decision of who who you should bring on board and was it through mm. networks you already had or did you go out and look for people or how did that work? Um, so, yeah, my my um, my tech guy, Jordan, is actually kind of a friend of a friend. Um, and it was an interest because that was the most critical part for me, having having some developers that I could work with that kind of got the problem, got what we were building. And he, he was actually... Um, you know we just had a couple of calls and I realized that the chemistry was right and he kind of got what I was saying and I really liked his suggestions and we kind of tentatively crept towards starting to work together Um, but the thing I really value him him from him for is he's um, he's truly agile in the sense that he would I'd be there worrying about you know making decisions about which button should go where and he'd already started to build it and, and that's actually really useful because he sort of taught me to let go and to give it a try and, you know, well, I'll just try this here and we'll try this here and, you know, and then we'll test it and then we'll see. And I was sort of there going, oh, but, you know, I need two hours to go away and <laughs> decide. And it really helped having somebody like that on board because if you can be a bit of a perfectionist like me, you can actually stall yourself. Yeah. And how do you keep a good relationship if you'd already because obviously you're going to be making difficult decisions and if you'd known him before, like this is something I actually genuinely want, want to know the answer to. Like, yeah, just to go through rough patches and still maintain yeah. that relationship. We actually had a conversation at the start. I think I said, you know, I'm, I'm concerned. You know, his sister's like one of my best friends and, you know, I, I didn't, I was I'm so worried about partnerships going wrong and things like that. Um, and we, we kind of agreed. We said, you know, we'll just sort of keep this um, to one side and our social side on the other. And 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 actually, um, I've realised that I never thought I could do that. I, I agree. I, it was always something I was quite anxious about, but I've realised that um, trying to r- remind myself of, you know, if I was in a corporate environment and he was my 
agency, for example, you know, how would I respond to the fact that I feel like, you know, there's a bug here that he needs to fix on his own time and money? Um, well, I, you know, I think about it this way. So almost putting my work hat on, making sure I was wearing my work hat and, and him too as well, I think really helped. So, uh, yeah, trying to not think of him as my friend, but think of him as, yeah, an agency or whatever that role is. And, and then obviously um, responding appropriately. And, and he's been extremely professional and helpful throughout and, and very good, I think, at kind of putting his kind of different hat on as well. Is there any advice that you would give to aspiring entrepreneurs like looking back over the last year or two? I think for me, um, it's kind of gone through lots of phases of researching and it's very foggy and undefined and then you get it more defined and then you launch it and you realise you have to learn how to market it. And there's like lots of different phases and each of them you don't really know what you're doing. Um, And the, the best thing I remind myself of when I feel uncomfortable is, you know, initially I felt really uncomfortable at the beginning of this phase, but three to six months later, I felt a little bit more comfortable. So almost when I feel uncomfortable, reminding myself that um, that's normal and it's going to pass and, you know, give it some time and I'll feel more comfortable. Um, Mm. So that kind of helps me not be hard on myself and not be too frustrated or, yeah, impatient when I feel like I'm not learning enough or getting it right. And whenever I read about tech culture, like, you know, stories in the New York Times or something, the impression that I get of entrepreneur culture silicon valley etc is that obviously a lot of men they're looking for to make money they want to scale up a business quickly they want to sell it they're thinking of the next big idea then they'll sell it and move on to the next idea whereas talking to you and other women it's like it's a business but it's also a passion project and it came about through maybe life experience or something that you knew affected um, other people and I'm just wondering I know it's a bit of a big question but I'm wondering how do we do both how can we admit actually this is my career and I do want to make money and maybe I want to sell it one day but I also want to do something that I believe in and makes a difference do you see what I'm saying I think a, a lot of people go through life and kind of start to realize if it doesn't sometimes it's just nice to have things leave a nice feeling in your in your stomach and feel like you're actually helping people and i that sounds tremendously cheesy, but I and I would have laughed at myself for saying that 10 years ago, but now I actually really feel that and I really enjoy that. Um, mm. And so, you know, when I think about the success of it, for me, the most, the, the genuine success is when I get emails from people saying, oh, it's so helpful, thank you, you know, it's just what I needed. I, I now understand and I was trying to, you know, I wasn't sure which contraception to move on to, but I've read, I've read the reviews and it really helped. And like, no, no amount of money can kind of give you that nice warm feeling. And if it does, then brilliant. But for me, it was like quite nice to have something that sort of sat with my morals and my, I don't know, just good feelings in life. And it's it's kind of, yeah, I'm learning a huge amount. It's It's kind of like a... you know I've spent a lot of money on it but I'd spend that much money on a throwaway holiday and you know not feel this good after it so yeah so do you primarily see yourself as an entrepreneur or do you or do you see yourself more as an advocate of this particular issue or kind of both I think kind of both I think I've got 
huge amount of satisfaction talking about it and you know meeting people who care about it and you know spreading the word about it um but um you know we're now moving into the next phase of looking at you know generating revenue and, and things like that and that would definitely put me in the more entrepreneur um bucket but for me I I sort of don't really don't really mind or care and a lot of people press me on it a lot and you know really oh you know what, what you're doing with this what you're doing and I'm like I don't know maybe maybe a part of me is just a bit more like I said, if it makes me feel good and I'm enjoying it, then I'm I'm very happy to continue with it as is and wait for it to to grow kind of organically. Yeah, and feel free to not answer this, but I am interested. Um, at what point did you decide that you wanted to spend your own money or invest any money in the project? Was it quite early on, or was it later when you kind of realised you had something there? Um. It started off, you know, ooh, a couple of hundred pounds here and there. And then it gradually starts growing and, and you start to get proud of it. Um, and then you're like, you know, I'd actually really want the design to look good because the design's everything. So, and then it's like, should I get flyers made for an event? You know, oh, should I test Facebook ads? And then before you know it, you've spent like hundreds of pounds. <laughs> and and I, yeah, I, I like I've said, I, you know, the way I've justified it is it's actually helpful um, and I'm learning a lot and I'd spend that much on holidays or overpriced training courses, so. Yeah, and to be fair, hundreds of pounds doesn't sound too catastrophic, not remortgaging your home or whatever. Um, but did you feel the pressure to learn new skills yourself to save money or did you think, actually, I want to get this right, I want to get it done quickly so you're willing to pay others to do certain things, whether it be making a flyer or whatever? I think I uh, I actually really enjoy the process of self-learning and kind of faking, you know, faking it and trying myself. And and I, I really enjoy that. Um, but I think with something like design, um, a lot of people say they really like the visual identity of the lowdown and the colours and, you know, the logo and everything. And had I got that wrong, that would have, I don't, you know, that's the, the personality of the whole thing. So I thought it was definitely worth investing there. Um, but other things, now you've got that design toolkit, you can you know do on the cheap, which is, is definitely what I've enjoyed. And I've really enjoyed learning how to pretend I can do design stuff as well. It's been fun. Mm. And what would you say your ultimate, it sounds like I'm interviewing you now for a job, but what is your ultimate kind of aim for the business? Or were you saying earlier that you're not quite sure you're happy to see where it grows like because I'm just interested in how people plan for the future I personally literally do not have a plan beyond Christmas whereas my sister has a 15-year plan so I think our personalities affect our work strategies and how we see our own future our business future so I'm, that's why I'm asking you what what do you see for yours yeah I think um I'm not a 15-year planner, I'm a five-year planner. But the reason I surprise myself, the fact that I don't know the answer to that question is because often I love planning and, you know, having goals and everything. But I'm in this weird phase at the moment where I'm I'm sort of pulling together the various threads of things that have happened and responses and feedback and connections and, and just really making sense of where I want to take it next. And if it's something that I'm really passionate about, um, like I was passionate about launching this a couple of years ago, then I'll do it. But equally, I think in life, it's sometimes interesting the things we decide not to do just as much as the things we, you know, we push forward and do. So if you're not 
you know, if nothing's motivating me to get up and think about such and such, then maybe it's not, maybe it's not the right thing to be doing. Um, so I'm just sort of mulling all that over at the moment and, and working out, yeah, where to go next. Um, but like I said, and anything that helps women, that, that gives us more options in this space that, you know, inspires people to create better contraceptive methods or do more research into them is absolutely what I'm for. I think that's a really positive philosophical note to end it on. So thank you very much, Alice, for your time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to An Honest Account. It would be really great if you rated, left a review or subscribed to this podcast. You can also tweet us at honest underscore account underscore. We're also on Instagram and our email is contact at anhonestaccount.co.uk. Stay tuned for next week when I talk about debtstagram and other topics with the personal finance guru, Bola Sol.